Hello everyone, and welcome back to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans for episode 14, The Life of Coriolanus, part 2. Due to another wave of the coronavirus in our local area, Chris and I were unable to meet up in person like we usually do to record this episode, but we hope to be back to our usual format for the next episode. In the meantime, Chris will take us through the conclusion of the life of Coriolanus. We saw in part 1 how Coriolanus rose from an orphan with a chip on his shoulder to a war hero with a chip on his shoulder, and now looks likely to be elected consul and achieve the peak of political power in the Roman Republic. Things looked pretty good for Coriolanus, but as we have seen in earlier episodes of the podcast, in ancient politics, things can change pretty quickly. Anyway, with that introduction, I'll pass things off to you, Chris. Thanks, Ryan, and welcome back, everyone. As Ryan mentioned, we really want to be together to record this episode, which is our 14th and also our last episode of Season 1 of the podcast. But alas, the best laid plans. It's really been a wonderful experience this year, and we are happy to announce we will begin recording Season 2 episodes in late January of 2022, giving this latest COVID wave a chance to ease. As Ryan mentioned, we left off during the consular elections with Coriolanus well-positioned to make history becoming a Roman consul. Becoming consul likely had the same prestige as becoming the president or prime minister of any modern country today, with candidates rising and falling as the people cast their ballots. It's tough to compare elections in Rome to, say, today, but the pursuit of power and glory is unanimous through the ages. It is very encouraging that Rome's imperfect republic lasted for as long as it did. I digress, so let's get back to Coriolanus. By the morning of the consular election that year, Coriolanus was a safe bet to win. With the masses reluctantly and finally giving Coriolanus the respect I think he had always been seeking. Coriolanus' past services to Rome had finally been recognized by the masses. And though the masses perhaps didn't trust him, his results over the past several years were undeniable. The morning of the election, Coriolanus must have been filled with confidence and excitement over his likely prospects of ascending to Rome's top position. It appears Coriolanus had finally convinced the masses that his actions spoke louder than his words and that he had brought real change and delivered real results quickly for the Roman people and that he could be trusted. Now, I highly doubt the people now saw him as a man of the commons but perhaps a man who could deliver for them, regardless as he had done in the past, and seems like the right person to leave Rome through these tumultuous times that they were living through. How long this relative respect would last was anyone's guess. However, we wouldn't have to wait long to find out. Coriolanus and several patrician senators entered the Senate together, likely showcasing the coming power dynamic and inner circle of the next consul. However, Coriolanus appears to have not realized the presence of anti-commoner senators would be received by the commoners he had just recently won over. And to the shock and horror of Coriolanus and the Senate, the commoners likely had a I-knew-it moment when seeing Coriolanus and his anti-commoner allies enter the Senate to observe the election results together and dumped Coriolanus and elected two others. While I'm speculating why the commoners ditched Coriolanus, I feel the speculation that the commoners' gut feeling about Coriolanus and his motives were confirmed when he entered with patrician hawks. 
Plutarch makes it clear that the Senate was more horrified by the power the people had in elections, where a successful Roman such as Coriolanus could be easily swept aside. And perhaps Coriolanus created a faction within the Senate who wanted more power. Now, when I say faction, think of the Tea Party or the Squad today in the U.S. Congress. Small, but possibly influential political groups. And the electoral loss of their chosen candidate may have made winning elections in the future a much more important task for these same senators. Perhaps showing the first signs of the slow deterioration of the Republican electoral process, which I believe is one of Plutarch's main points in his life of Coriolanus. After Marcia's defeat, in a bit of a twist, announced his intentions to retire quickly from public service, as Plutarch describes, and quote, Marcius, straightforward and direct, and possessed with the idea that to vanquish and overbear all opposition is the true part of bravery, and never imagining that it was the weakness and womanishness of his nature that broke out, so to say, in these ulcerations of anger, retired, full of fury and bitterness against the people. The young patricians, too, all that were proudest and most conscious of their noble birth, had always been devoted to his interest, and adhering to him now with a fidelity that did him no good, aggravated his resentment with the expression of their indignation and condolence. So, with Coriolanus' retirement looming, he got into one more spat with the tribunes, where he opposed a measure the Senate was considering, which was to issue grain allotments at below-market prices, which had been gifted to Rome from neighboring friendly nations, where Coriolanus felt handouts were not the answer to the ongoing famine. Coriolanus spoke in the Senate and managed to convince many patricians weary of the recent accommodations made to the commoners to come to his side. However, the tribunes immediately rushed outside to the growing crowd of commoners, exclaiming Coriolanus had hijacked the Senate discussions and was rallying the Senate to vote against the grain allotment relief they had just proposed. To the shouts of solidarity, the Tribune went back into the Senate, blamed Coriolanus for the standstill, and demanded he address the assembly of commoners to account for his reasoning behind not supporting the grain allotment. As expected, Coriolanus refused, and the Tribune rushed in the Aediles to forcibly remove Coriolanus. But many patricians came to Coriolanus' rescue, assaulting the Aediles in the process. A big no-no in those times and I suppose a no-no in ours also. With dusk washing over Rome, the commotion ended, only to be picked up on the morrow, where the Tribune would lay charges against Coriolanus. The next day, the Senate quickly passed the grain allotment law, allowing the recent corn allotment to be sold at very reasonable prices, and relieved the stranglehold the recent famine had on the city. With the people happy, the Tribune next moved against Coriolanus and laid charges against Coriolanus for 1. instigating the Senate to overthrow the Republic and annul the privileges of the people, 2. not obeying a lawful summons from the Tribune, which led to the commotion with the Aedals, and 3. assaulting the Aedals and attempting to start a civil war. Coriolanus was unexpectedly defiant of these accusations and refused to answer to them. The Tribune then, out of rage, announced Coriolanus was guilty and should be executed forthwith. Another scuffle ensued, 
which saw the Tribune fail to acquire Coriolanus and agree with the Senate to allow a fair trial to end the commotion. Coriolanus agreed, sensing this was the better compromise than perhaps all-out conflict in the Senate, and gave him time to plot his next moves. Many patricians in the Senate privately were very concerned they just opened the floodgates for the people to charge and try the patricians whenever they felt the Senate or someone was not in agreement with their ideas or proposals. Resentment between patrician and commoner was becoming more obvious, and with the people assembly finding Coriolanus guilty on lesser charges surrounding his actions in the Senate the previous day, was spared his life, but banished forever, making Coriolanus an enemy of Rome, and well, Rome, an enemy of Coriolanus. With his banishment in effect immediately, Coriolanus moved with purpose, gathering a few belongings and a few clients and took off from Rome, vowing he would return to make the people pay. The people, unfortunately, wouldn't have to wait long for Coriolanus to make good on his vow. Back in Rome, the people celebrated, while the Senate mourned. The rift between patrician and commoner was now forged and would only grow over the coming centuries. It is my opinion, as I mentioned earlier, Plutarch in telling the story of Coriolanus was also perhaps pointing to this brief episode in Roman history as a time when the Republic began to show signs of cracks, though it would be many centuries before major issues would plunge Rome into despair. I should say political despair. But we shall save those stories for future shows. Coriolanus immediately sought out an old adversary amongst the Volscians, at the city of Antium, a Volscian stronghold after the last war, by the name of Tullus. Plutarch tells us an undisguised Coriolanus entered the city of Antium and went directly to Tullus's estate, entered and sat in the atrium and waited to be greeted, expecting a cold welcome and was prepared for the worse. However, when a servant came and brought him to the dining hall where Tullus and his family were feasting, He was unexpectedly warmly greeted, but only after a few explanatory words from Coriolanus about how he was betrayed by Rome and was seeking revenge against her. The two would feast and act as longtime friends well into the evening. During our preparation for this episode, Ryan and I actually had a pretty great back and forth um, and analysis of Coriolanus' move to befriend the Volscians, um, who... He was likely seen as a complete enemy of, of, of the Volscians. So while Ryan and I both had agreed that it was slightly odd that Coriolanus would go to the Volscians um, to seek refuge, um, we also agreed that there was mutual benefits for both parties, um, where Tullus likely saw Coriolanus as a great general who vanquished the Volscian army very quickly and effectively, and perhaps could do the same for the Volscians against the Romans um, down the road. And for Coriolanus, obviously, he was booted from Rome and wanted revenge. And the Volscians were likely the only vehicle for him to do that at the time. Anyways, regardless how the Volscians really felt, they opened their doors wide open for Coriolanus. And very quickly agreed Coriolanus would general the main Volscian field army while Tullus would provide the defenses to the Volscian towns and cities likely to be part of the coming war, or at least in harm's way. In the meantime, Coriolanus began a misinformation campaign in Rome. 
and eventually word came to the sitting consuls of the time that the Volscians, who were in Rome under the most recent treaty, were planning to burn down Rome while the city was neck deep in the upcoming games. With a loose treaty in place less than two years prior, Coriolanus needed a reason for Volscians to go to war, to be on moral high ground, I suppose you could call it. The Romans took the bait, and the consuls, though didn't want to go to war immediately due to the upcoming consular elections and games, did move to expel all Volscians from Rome, which from my understanding was a key term of the peace, allowing each other's city's citizens to visit each other's cities and towns. Toll sent ambassadors to Rome, demanding reparations, and wanted all towns Rome had taken the last war returned to them. The consuls refused, and the Volscians, and at the bequest of Tullus, voted for war. Coriolanus, in response, immediately raided Roman territory, capturing so much loot and booty that much had to be left behind. Coriolanus was very crafty and only raided and destroyed Roman commoner lands and property, leaving senatorial properties alone, likely to further widen the gap between the Senate and the people. Coriolanus likely thought that perhaps this would mute a Roman response, and he would be correct. With a small and initial victory in hand, which saw no Roman response, the Volscian coffers full and the people with plenty, they raised additional forces to be put in the field, and Coriolanus led this army back into Latin territory, a Roman ally, capturing seven towns and cities, slaughtering most of the male inhabitants as they moved along, and finally rested in a small town called Bola, about 10 miles from Rome herself. Rome and her people now began to wake up to the threat from Coriolanus, and the city began to panic, with some fleeing and others beginning to prepare for a siege, and many broke out into prayer, which vast amounts of women came out to prayer. I'm guessing by Plutarch's emphasis on the women coming out that that was not a normal occurrence. And with the Senate and Coriolanus's allies unable to dissuade him to not sack Rome, and Coriolanus giving them only 30 days to agree to his terms, a blast from the past, well, sort of, makes one last desperate attempt to save Rome. This blast from the past was Valeria, Poplicola's sister, who though Poplicola was dead, still had influence and went to Coriolanus' mother, wife, and children, and begged them to make one attempt to talk sense into Coriolanus. Of course, Poplicola was Rome's second king, and one of my all-time favorite Romans. This was brilliant, as the English would say, as Coriolanus, after a tear-soaked speech from his mother, pleading with her only son to not forsake her, his wife and children, along with Rome, who she knew he loved, relented, and called off the siege as quickly as it had started, and ordered the Volscian army home. Tullus and the soldiers followed the orders and headed back to Antium, where the Volscian consul condemned Coriolanus to death, executing him on the spot. Valeria made a request to the Senate that they allow Rome to mourn Coriolanus for ten months. The maximum amount of time mourning was allowed under Poplicola's created laws. Coriolanus, through all his anger and rage and frustrations, I think in the end found his morality and must have known saving Rome from himself meant his own sacrifice at the hands of the Volscians. 
And for that, I forgive Coriolanus for his egotistical behavior, which would permanently strain the relationship between Senate and Commons and lead to the eventual rise of the Empire. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Have a safe holiday and a happy new year. And we'll see you in late January for season two, The Lives of Plutarch. Thank you.